Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 225 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. In our episode today, we're going to have an interview here with Susan Divers, this uh, senior consultant from LRN, on the 2022 LRN Program Effectiveness uh, Study. Uh, And uh, looking forward to a discussion with Susan. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, the study itself is something I uh, highly recommend everybody uh, get a chance to read and uh, look at it because it always includes really insightful um, comments and uh, results uh, that you can apply in your own ethics and compliance program. So uh, before we get started, how about a word from our sponsor, Steel Compliance. Steel Compliance is the global leader in compliance and ethics management. Steel's compliance and ethics platform is comprehensive, robust, and easy to use to promote a company's culture of compliance. Steel partners with the world's largest, most respected companies to deliver compliance products and services that help organizations embrace a culture of compliance while protecting their brand. Building an ethical culture is a complex undertaking that requires a detailed understanding of the global compliance environment, considerable time, and specialized expertise. Steel's end-to-end ethics and compliance platform is designed to provide compliance officers with the solutions they need to proactively address changing regulatory and reputational risks. Steel's ethics and compliance automated platform offers critical functions designed to promote a speak-up culture to advance employee engagement, reporting, and incident management, Investigate promptly and fairly potential incidents to ensure compliance with your organization's code of conduct and applicable laws and regulations, including anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, antitrust, sanctions, cybersecurity, and data privacy. Manage your organization's compliance policies and procedures to ensure that policies are updated and disseminated effectively so that employees understand your organization's compliance requirements. Educate and engage your organization to promote understanding in how your compliance program applies to -to day-to-day operations. And evaluate and monitor your organization's business partners, vendors, suppliers, and customers to mitigate risk and ensure adherence to your organization's ethics and compliance requirements. To learn more about Steel's compliance solutions, please contact us at email steelglobal.com or call 415-692-5000. Well, I'm really happy to have Susan Divers here for a senior advisor from LRN uh, and uh, to talk about the 2022 uh, study that was just recently released. Susan, welcome and thank you for joining me and hopefully our listeners, but we really appreciate your time. Oh, Michael, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, let me, uh, and uh, Susan uh, has a very interesting background, and I want to just take a moment, and I, uh, just to, so everybody knows, she was a, she's a senior advisor, and she's a very busy person, because if you look at her LinkedIn uh, profile, she's done a lot. Uh, She's a senior advisor at LRN and has been for at least the last six years. She also was the executive director, and everybody knows this, the Ethisphere Institute. Uh, and the Business Ethics Leadership Alliance. Uh, and then I, I noticed uh, you were also an ethical leadership and compliance consultant at the Rutgers Institute for Ethical Leadership. And I, I will ask you one question in a minute about Rutgers, because I know Rutgers Law, I thought, had a compliance program in healthcare. But then 
when uh, Susan also was the senior corporate vice president and chief ethics and compliance officer and associate general counsel at ACOM in Arlington, Virginia, and we all know ACOM and very highly regarded company and compliance program. So congrats on all your work there for five years. So, uh, so Susan, I would like to say, you know, you've been in the trenches and you've also been in sort of the study tower. Um, and that must give you a kind of interesting perspective when you come to reports and studies like the, the recent one out of LRN. Well, it does, Michael. And um, one of the reasons I was so happy to join LRN after leaving um, a long career in corporate, in corporations in um, the ethics function was that LRN is really interested in best practices and what works. Um, and it, it does a lot of research um, into that. So the ability to combine, as you say, a slightly academic perspective with my real life experience has just been tremendous. And, and you know, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said, look, there are a lot of people who give out advice or they have suggestions, but what I am always looking at is the research on what works. And you said it in your first sentence, Susan, and to me, one of the things that I have been really, and you know, I, and I'm not just sucking up to you, but uh, it really impressed by is LRN really is focused on that second question. What works and what's the proof that we have that it works? And I think the, for that reason, all of your work is like a must read for compliance professionals, people in the field. Well, you're too kind. Um, we appreciate it nonetheless. Um, I will say that if you look back um, over the last couple of years in particular, uh, you look at the scandals that erupted in the wake of the Me Too um, movement, uh, for example, and you see name brand companies, um, a lot of media companies, um, NBC, even PBS, um, and others, and those were organizations with well-funded compliance programs, as you know. Uh, they had codes of conduct, they had experienced staff, they had training, they had all the bells and whistles, but their programs failed when it came to um, restraining and preventing and even punishing uh, that type of completely predatory behavior. So in our area, we're really focused on going beyond sort of activities and checklists and getting under the hood, as it were, of what really does work for a compliance program. And that's what our annual program effectiveness report is trying to do each year. And, and uh, that's what I, I mean, you couldn't have said it any better. That's, I mean, you hit the nail right on the head in terms of what I find of value. And I think everybody in the field uh, you know, working in governance, uh, compliance, legal, whatever, uh, should absolutely read uh, and get up to speed with, uh, with a lot of the research that you guys have done. I'm hoping that people are doing that. But let's start uh, with, you know, the most recent report. Last year, you guys put out two reports, and uh, we've, I had a discussion here about that, and I was really ecstatic to see this new report. Um, and if you can sort of tell us uh, what the focus was or in, in the sort of 
you know, approach that you used and, and what the day, you know, with the survey, who you surveyed and things like that, that would be great. Sure, I'd be happy to, Michael. Um, this year, we were able to expand our survey um, scope and we got responses to a questionnaire that we send out every year, which we change depending on the circumstances and the focus. Um, we got responses from 1,200 ethics and compliance professionals worldwide, and approximately 60% were from outside the US. So we were really happy um, with that diversity, and we were also happy with 1,200. 1,200 is, is a good response rate. And what we saw, which to me was, was very gratifying, but so interesting too, was that it confirmed what we had seen the year before when we did the same um, survey, basically, uh, that programs had emerged from the pandemic stronger um, and that they were at the center for, for organizations' response to the COVID crisis. And this year, 82% of our respondents indicated that their ethical culture had become stronger as a result of their experience during the pandemic. And that's up from 78% last year. So I think that's a very robust affirmation um, of what we're seeing. I, I definitely do. And it's really interesting to me, and I, I like, I mean, your perspective on this is, here we are going through a uh, you know, really difficult time in the country. Businesses are disrupted. People are in remote working environments. And yet your evidence is showing that you know, the uh, culture of ethics and compliance is actually improving or was at the center or was in the middle of this. I mean, what, what do you, what's, your, what's your opinion as to why that happened, how that happened? I'd be really curious. Um, well, I think there are really two aspects to it. Um, one is it, people had to rely on values to get through the crisis. And I think ethics and compliance professionals as a general proposition have come over to the view that rules are good. You have to have rules as a scaffold for your program. But what really changes behavior and what really motivates people and what allows you to get through the biggest risk event in probably the last 10 years at least um, are values. And um, if you look at last year's report, we had a number of case studies. And just to cite one, um, Braskin USA had employees volunteer to self-isolate for 30 days at a time in the plants to keep the electrical grid up and going. And you know, no rule could have forced them to do that. No rule, um, it wouldn't have been lawful, let's start there, but no rule could have made them do that. But they were motivated by common purpose and values. Um, so that was a big factor. And we saw that all throughout our report this year and last year. And then second, I would say that ethics and compliance programs have gained a lot of credibility, especially as they've shifted more towards values uh, and away from just being the cop shop. Uh, and leaders really rose to the occasion too, based on our data. And 
I think there was a, a virtuous circle starting there or, or continuing where leaders saw the value in values and uh, ethics and compliance professionals had done a good job of putting those at the center of their program. Well, that, I mean, that's music to my ears because like I tell uh, clients and, you know, colleagues and whatever, uh, look, your ethical culture is your best control. It's the most effective control. Uh, and, you know, you can write all the rules you want, um, but in the end, it's the inspiration, the fact that people feel part of the mission of your company and believe in the mission. Uh, I mean, I know it sounds corny and emotional and it's amorphous, but it actually is true. And I've seen it, you know, firsthand, and I'm sure you have too in your work, that when people believe in the company and believe in their leaders and believe in the mission, uh, you know, they're more productive. They don't leave their job. They'll make sacrifices for the common good. And they'll report people who are hurting the organization, you know, by engaging in misconduct. I know this all sounds kind of like, um, you know, sort of just obvious. I'm always good as a profound grasp of the obvious. But to me, this is the headline of your report is really significant uh, in that respect. And I'm I going to, if you'll indulge me one minute, I want to read one part of your report. And I, I just was so uh, inspired by it. As LRN stated, Values transform culture and impact behavior. Rules merely set the minimum standards. And you guys said, as one chief ethics and compliance officer stated, rules tell us what we must do. Values tell us what we should do. I, I mean, those two sentences says it all for me. And, um, you know, how can we get people and I mean, the, the, I want to get companies even more interested in those those two sentences and committed to those two sentences. And maybe the pandemic, in, in a sense, forced companies to do that. But I think that this is a new sort of trajectory we're on. What do you, what do you think? Well, I think so too, Michael. And, and I also think I'm going to um, start quoting you because I love <laughs> Thinking about values, values are your best control mechanism. Um, right. And, you know, it's, it's easy if you're not in the trenches to step back a little bit and say, it doesn't work to just keep piling on the rules. And in fact, you run the risk of making your program not employee friendly. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure you've read plenty of policies in, in your work life. Right, right. They're not written for employees, they're written for other lawyers. Um, and they're not written for clarity, they're written for defense. Um, and then you're making it harder for executives to talk about ethics and compliance comfortably um, because they're not gonna uh, quote the FCPA or um, you know anti-money laundering. So when you make that shift, which is a profound shift, and you start focusing on values for example, we don't bribe anyone anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances. Well, anyone can talk about that and anyone can really understand that too. Um, so it, I think there's sort of a virtuous circle that starts going when you make the shift to values. You make it easier for leaders to talk about them. 
and you make it easier for employees to understand what you're actually expecting them to do. And better yet, um, as we saw um, with a lot of the, with all of the anecdotes that we've put in our reports lately, uh, you make it easier for employees to be inspired and to rise to the occasion. Yeah, that's what, and one of the things that I also noticed in your report, and maybe you can, uh, and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot as to whether or not you've memorized it or whatnot, but the, and I, I'm not going to try to get too detailed on it, but I wanted, you do, do, and you make a lot of interesting findings and you divide companies, uh, programs into sort of high performing, medium performing, and low performing. And can you talk about those ideas and and what you saw in particular or any observations that you thought were interesting with regard to those uh, categories? Because I thought um, if there was ever a justification for investment in a compliance and ethics program, this was, I thought your your report should be on every board member's seat. You are too kind, Michael. Um, no, I'm happy to. Um, and first, I'll talk a little bit about our evaluation criteria. Um, mm -hmm. When I came to LRN nearly six years ago, um, we we really sat down and looked hard at you know how we evaluated programs for effectiveness. And um, as my colleague David Greenberg famously said in one of the meetings, um, too often it, it's counting activities. Uh, it's how many people did you train. Um, how long did it take to resolve hotline complaints? How often do you upgrade your code of conduct? Um, and as we can see, that's really actually meaningless if the program doesn't have impact and it and it, it doesn't resonate and it's not based on real values and your ethical culture is rancid. Um, so we ask people questions based on our culture survey which we do quite a lot of, um, that focus on levels of respect, levels of trust, levels of organizational justice, which is absolutely critical to an ethics and compliance program, and um, levels of speaking up. And we rank programs based on those, on those criteria rather than how many times have you upgraded your code. Um, so that's what we're looking at when we make those categories. And then in terms of what high-performing programs do better, um, they are very values-driven um, and they really enjoy significant support, um, both from their executive leadership and from their boards, um, which I think is an area of increasing focus now for companies uh, in this area. Um, and they also, they really care about employees. They, they push the easy button. Uh, mm -hmm. They make it easier for employees to engage. Uh, and we had a great story last year in our program effectiveness report from one of our partners, Dell, um, about moving big pieces of their ethics and compliance program to a mobile app. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you think about it, um, employees were at home and they were, you know, juggling their kids' schoolwork and their spouses' work and one, maybe one computer. Um, and so moving it to a mobile app, you know, allowed people to do their training on time. Um, and I believe they moved pieces of their, uh, I think they moved their hotline there too. 
and focused on single sign-on so that you're not scrolling through screen after screen. So that's an example of focusing on people and focusing on employees and making it easier for them at a time of great stress. And I find that, I find the kinds of results we saw last year and this year very, very inspiring. And, and just to follow up on that point, because there was a particular finding that, that I thought was interesting, was that the report concluded that the high-performing ethics and compliance programs uh, outperform medium and low programs because you, they facilitated the use of compliance tools um, and to make it more user-friendly. And that to me is amazing because here's a practical technical solution, but yet it had uh, such a big impact in improving employee engagement. And that's what I thought was really, and the Dell, is, Dell case is a perfect example of that. But what I noticed in the 2022 study is that you also found that companies, the high performing companies, we're doing that as well, thinking about ways to make it easy to engage or easier to engage the uh, the employees. Absolutely. And we've been privileged to work with partners that are really get it in that space. And one um, CECO I worked with a couple of years ago on policy simplification said, when I log into Amazon, I can get what I want with one click. I want mm -hmm. our employees to have the same experience. So, for example, if if you're going to take a foreign official out um, uh, for coffee or lunch, um, and there are rules about that, of course, um, you shouldn't have to hunt and peck and search and link um, all over your website. You should be able to do that with one or two clicks um, to request to review the rules, request permission, and then hopefully get guidance back in real time. Um, and that is a really good lens uh, through which people should look at their program, particularly in the wake of the pandemic. I remember one client who, it's a like retailer with retail stores all around the country. And, you know, they had one computer in the retail store for, um, you know, for training purposes, okay? But you have multiple employees in there and people moving it, you know, part-time employees and everything. And they had to think about a new solution to facilitate the training and engagement of the employees. And they ultimately went to sort of a cheaper version of iPads and things like that. But to me, those practical issues can have a big impact on, hey, we care about everybody. We want you to engage and we're not just gonna throw a computer up here and if you get time, you can check the box and finish your program. Don't you think that kind of sends what you're talking about a much, you know, a more important engagement about how you value your employees? That's what I was thinking. Oh, totally, totally. Um, you, you're not sort of just leaving them on their own to figure it out. Um, you're, you're facilitating that and you're investing in you know whatever the technology or the platform is that you need um, to make that really happen. And I don't know if you had a chance to look at the part of the report that talks about training. Um, yeah. That's of course a, a big LRN um, activity. And 
um, people are really moving away from what, what I always call the old Soviet style training, which right, is right. 45 minute lectures on how to fix a truck. Um, by, and by lawyers, by the way, by lawyers oh, who I, you I, know, I, put everybody to sleep, you know. Yeah, the recovering lawyer, I get it. Right, yeah. And it's, and, and, and even the Department of Justice in its guidance in 2020 was talking about the need to tailor training to people's uh, specific functions and the specific risks right. that they face. And right. short modules, um, we use kind of a menu tile approach. Um, where if you want to do six minutes on gifts and entertainment, you can uh, easily, um, and you can find what you need. You don't have to plow through everything. Um, and um, also using video short vignettes um, and test out and features like that. I mean, I think we're going to see that we're seeing a lot of innovation in training, and we're certainly doing a lot of that. And I think we're going to see more, which I think is good. Yeah. So uh, just to show that we're uh, fair and balanced, um, you know, in our uh, in our podcasts and things like that. In the study, there were some there were a couple of notes of uh, things. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, of you identified areas of weakness uh, for certain for um, respondents. And what was there anything that struck you about any of those issues and anything you can sort of fill the audience in on? Sure. Um, I think there's an interesting shift going on. Um, and I was lucky enough to talk with Forrest Deegan, who's at Victoria's Secret now and has had a long career as a, as a CECO in retail recently. And we did a podcast with Forrest and he noted that if you look at sort of what people innovated and did during the, the pandemic the last two years, and then what they plan to do, there's a big gap there. Mm, um, interesting, interesting. Forest theory, which I, I agree with, um, is that everyone was waiting to see if it was gonna go back to normal, um, you know, after a year. And uh, you know, clearly, unfortunately, the answer to that is no, it's not. Um, and there's still uncertainty, and there's hybrid, and there's return to work, and there's mass exodus, and and it's it's not going back to the status quo ante. And force mm -hmm. theory now, people are saying, okay, we are where we are. We need change. Um, we need to make it easier to use virtual platforms. And we need to really focus on the employee experience, and we need to put tools into the hands of people who uh, can use them um, to really make our compliance program uh, remain relevant and strengthen our ethical culture. Does that make sense? As a yep, yep, absolutely. So, um, and and I think that that and and I think that you know all the. I think compliance practitioners, you know, sort of experience that in sort of being in a holding pattern for a period of time. I think they expected things to be a lot worse, but in the end, I think uh, all compliance practitioners were sort of surprised by how much of a role they ended up playing within the organization to, you know, sort of make it through. And oh, I think about it, you know, and think about it too, Susan, there, you know, with the remote working environment, 
it's almost like compliance became even more important as an outreach or as a as a, an available sounding board as somebody to be be there for, for for people in the company you're right michael and we did see um companies shifting their hotlines away from being simply misconduct reporting towards being helplines ah interesting that, yep so if you had a question, you know, perhaps you had had um, issues or questions about benefits or anything, um, finding employee assistance, um, whatever. Um, by doing that, again, companies were really thinking of thinking about it from an employee point of view, and I think that trend will continue too. Um, yeah. to get easier for, for sure. people. Help. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I think. There are going to be innovations that came out of this period, even though it was a difficult period, that I think people are going to find are useful in the whatever we want to call the new normal whenever we get to it. But I think that it, I think it's going to be, um, it's kind of like an iterative process, and we've moved forward again in terms of compliance. Um, and you know, so, but let me. Uh, I'll get off my soapbox for a second, and I want to sort of take a broader view and take a step back because uh, the study I would commend everybody to to read the report. Um, but uh, in general, what to me the message of values and culture and uh, and the importance of it. I are you seeing any? What is the trend you're seeing in terms of senior leadership? embracing the importance of this and let me just say beyond the sort of standard line that i hear from you know ceos board members you know we've got a great culture here mike we do the right thing that's our motto and as soon as i hear that i know that they're not in the weeds they or they don't really get the whole values picture that you're talking about but what's taking a step back from a macro level and given your you know incredible experience what do what do you see in terms of uh, you know leadership and business leadership embracing these concepts that you're talking about with values and culture great question i mean i think that the pandemic showed the value of ethics and compliance programs quite dramatically um, because they really played a central role in helping leadership navigate um, a thicket of very, very difficult issues. And they played a role, as you pointed out, um, of engaging people. Um, and as I was talking about, they played a role in making it easier for employees um, to do what they needed to do. So, as you know, the debate over, well, does an ethics program actually add value or not? And you can't prove a negative. You can't say, well, we prevented right. 16 mishaps that would have you know, caused regulatory action. Um, but you can prove a positive, which is that having a strong, vibrant ethical culture got us through the pandemic. And I think a lot of executives really experienced that. Um, and it, you know, it wasn't, you can't just keep talking about, you know, profit. You have to talk about how you're going to retain people, how you're going to motivate them, how you're going to inspire them, even if they're not in the office. 
Um, and again, how you're going to make it easy for them. Um, so, you know, I really, I'm, I guess I'm an optimist by nature, but in my experience, once senior leaders see the virtues of a positive ENC program, not just the negatives, um, the cop shop approach, then I think um, it makes it easier for them uh, to be supportive. And also, by keeping the messages values focused, you make it a lot easier for them to talk about it because they're comfortable talking about, um, you know, we don't bribe anyone anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances, but they may not right. be comfortable yeah. talking about, you know, the UK Bribery Act. Right. Well, look, I am a, I'm a constant advocate on the power of a positive message. And you said it right there in the sense of the value of an ethical culture is you get reduced rates of misconduct, you have higher uh, productivity, less turnover, you have, I mean, it just makes a happier place in general. It's all common sense. And in the end, it uh, it also affects the bottom line in terms of sustainable growth when you have those types of uh, factors at place at play. And so to me, I never have looked at compliance as, you know, the fear factor doesn't work. We have to inspire people. And that's why uh, the value of what you guys, this report is to say, not only do we know this is right, not only can we prove that it's right, but uh, you're giving us ideas on how to measure it. And that to me is because people shy away from this issue because it's a, a little bit more amorphous. And LRN has consistently done work that asks how do we measure it? How do we prove this positive benefit? And so I just wanna say to you that Number one, thank you for for the work, but also number two, I'd also like to sort of hear your reactions to that, but also tell us where what LRN has, you know, in the hopper for sort of more work, or are there issues that you anticipate focusing on, you know, that we're going to need to hear about during this year and the and the next year even. Well, Michael, as always, we appreciate both the interest and the vote of confidence. Um, and and we are we're, we're always on a journey um, of producing good meaningful research. Um, we had our ethical culture survey come out um, uh, I think a couple months ago, and we're hoping to use the data that we got this year from the program effectiveness report to see if there are meaningful differences between programs in different regions of the world. Um, mm. And we're just running that analysis now, so I don't have anything to share, but we'll certainly share it um, if we find some interesting differences. Yeah, that would be great. We'd love to have you back and, and hear about that. But, uh, but go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but. Uh, oh, not at all. No, and, um, and we have a partnership with Tapestry Networks in the area of board research. Um, and there's a number of, of interesting initiatives there. Um, so all I can say at this stage is watch this space uh, because that's that's core to what we do. Um, right. looking, taking a good look at what actually works. Well, let me, uh, and we're coming against the time here, but I had one last question and, and I, of course, we went a whole conversation without using ESG. 
And uh, what a lo and behold uh, shock that is. But I do have to ask you for, you know, your views on, you know, the ESG priority and the movement. Uh, and just to sort of say to you, I, I find, I call the G, the, you know, I call it the big G because it's for governance. And governance to me, in terms of the ESG initiative, uh, embraces everything that you're talking about here. Um, and I just wanted to get sort of your views of where you see uh, this fit into the sort of G ESG framework. Well, Michael, I couldn't agree more. And I'm, I'm glad you articulated that um, principle so well, because I think it's easy to lose sight of. Um, in ESG, I've been lucky enough um, to help LRN interact with <clears throat> Goal 16 and the UN Global Compact and some of their working groups. And ethics and compliance are part and parcel of the G. Um, people tend to see sort of ESG more in terms of environmental, which of course it is. But when you go into a community or when you open a new plant or set up a subsidiary in a new community, you're impacting um, their institutions and you're impacting their governance. And if you're, let's take an example, if you're making facilitating payments, you're basically distorting that economy and you're incentivizing corruption mm -hmm. uh, and you're weakening institutions and you're making it harder for people in that community to afford things. Um, so I really hope more companies come around to the way you're seeing it, um, which is to really understand that ethics and compliance fit directly into the G of ESG, because that's absolutely the case. Well, Susan, thank you so much uh, for your time. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, if, uh, if any of our listeners uh, would like to reach you to sort of talk about the report or any of the other issues you've, you've mentioned here, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Uh, well, I'm always pretty uh, prompt responding to my email at LRN, and it's susan.divers at lrn.com. And also, uh, it's pretty easy to find me on the website, on LRN's website. And I, I'm always happy to answer questions or have any kind of follow-up, Michael. And thank you so much for the opportunity. It's just been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, well, thank you, Susan. Uh, we appreciate it. We look forward to you know more survey reports and more insights. And thank you again to you and, and the whole LRN team for the work that you do to support the compliance profession. Thank you again. Well, back at you. Thanks, Michael. Okay. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com.
hair of 